All right, well, good morning, church. Last week, we talked about, or we looked at, the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, right? And the ancestors, uh, you know, the, the descendants of the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, all their descendants started those 70 nations, those 70 kingdoms that we looked at last week. And so someone asked me a question last week after church, the text messaged me a question, and I thought you might have had this question as well. So um, I figured I'd answer it. So the Bible tells us that from these descendants, from those descendants, from the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, all the nations spread abroad um, on the earth, right? So that's Genesis 10.32, which says that these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these, the clans of the sons of Noah, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So if all the nations on the earth are descended from the sons of Noah, and they are, uh, and they are, <laughs> they are, I mean, it's what the Bible tells us, and that's what I believe. But the, how is it if all, you know, if they all come from the three sons of Noah, how is it that we have so many completely different ethnicities? Right? How is it that we have so many completely different races and cultures and, and all this stuff? And the simple answer is adaptation, right? That's the simple answer. You adapt to the environment in which you live. At one time on the earth, uh, you know, one time on the earth, it was a pleasant and perfect environment for living. This was pre-flood. So you didn't have any harsh weather. You didn't have really hot days. You didn't have really cold days. There was no snow. There was no rain. There was nothing like this. Um, of course, like I said, that was before the flood. But now after the flood, the environment on the earth has changed. Uh, now you have snow and you have rain and now you have deserts and now you have floodlands and now you have all these different kinds of environments. You even probably have a rockier terrain and, and more mountainous terrain and all this different stuff that you didn't have. And you probably even have areas of the earth that at that time they might have thought were completely uninhabitable. There's no way anybody could live there, right? You know, and, you know, just on an average today on the earth, right, the temperature on the earth ranges anywhere from negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. That's an average temperature range on the earth today, right? Yesterday, as a matter of fact, the hottest temperature in the United States was 105 degrees and the lowest was 55 degrees. That's just in the United States, right? That was like Texas and Washington, <laughs> right? That's like you know, difference just between those states. So anyway... So if you have a, a, a pale-skinned person who's always covered himself, right, with layers of clothing, and is suddenly thrown into an environment where he how has to wear t-shirts and shorts all the time, uh, he will find his pale skin become less pale, right, and even tan. And not just that, but science has shown us that over a couple of generations, as that person settles into that area, and they have kids, and their kids' kids have kids, and kids, and dawn down the line, they will start just being born darker skinned as it goes on down through the generations. That's the easy answer. The long answer, right, is that in the beginning, everyone had the potential, or the genetics, or the genes, or the DNA, for specifically distinctively uh, characteristics. 
that would set you apart from someone else, that would make you look different from someone else. However, science, right, science shows us that genes are usually latent, which means they're existing but they're not developed, in large populations, which is what they were after the flood. Because everyone had congregated together roughly in one area, an area you know, surrounding where the ark settled in Turkey, basically. And they were a large population. They hadn't, they hadn't scattered. They hadn't gone anywhere. They hadn't settled any other lands. Nothing. However, as soon as you become a smaller population, which is what happened after they were dispersed, those same genes now have the opportunity to become expressed and even dominant. And what does that mean? That means in a few generations, <clears throat> and, you know, of course you have uh, brothers and sisters marrying brothers and sisters and cousins and, you know, all this on down the line, but that didn't really affect things too much because we didn't have as corrupted of a gene pool as we, you know, do today. Uh, but in a few generations, what that means is, is that distinctive characteristics, for example, of skin color and height and hair texture and facial features and temperaments and environmental adjustments and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, could come now to be associated with particular tribes and nations. As they moved to different areas on the globe, and those different areas had different environments in which they lived, and now they were smaller groups and not larger groups of people, their genetics came out more, their distinctive characteristics came out more, they adapted to the environments in which they lived, which changed how they looked. And therefore, right, you have a po this is where you get a possibly Middle Eastern looking, we don't know what Noah's sons looked like, right, we're just guessing, oh, Middle Eastern looking, you know, but, but that's just, you know, the ones who descended or stayed in that area. Right, So you have this, these three Noah's sons that within a few generations later could now look Asian or Native American or African American or European, whatever that look is. Right, you, know, you could have all these different looks now that came from just three sons. So if you had that question, there you go. There's your answer. So, but what caused this mass migration that we looked at last week? What was the catalyst that caused them all to go out and settle all these kingdoms and go out and, and actually scatter across the globe? What was the main reason? You know, in the Hebrew, I said that the word scattered, when, uh, for them scattering across the globe or being dispersed across the globe, is actually a Hebrew word that means shattered. Right? So they were shattered. The people were, in a sense, one unit and, so, and God, God. But God, God came down and shattered the people and s dispersed them, all the little pieces across the globe, right? What was the event that caused that? It was the Tower of Babel, which is what we're going to be looking at today. The Tower of Babel isn't so much a historical pi picture about building a tower, you know, as it is about the pride of man and the dependence of self. It's one of the most arrogant revolts recorded, recorded in scripture. And, and it's not really much different than how we live today. In the sense that we take a month to celebrate pride, right? So what we're celebrating is our sinful arrogance and our direct disobedience to God, right? To God's word. And here we are, a nation in bondage to sin, and we're suffering from the blatant destruction of sin. And yet in our blindness and our ignorance and our arrogance, what do we do? We celebrate it and award it, right? Instead of turning away from it and repenting. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
which is what we're seeing, at least in our nation. Uh, so let's read Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, the Tower of Babel. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found the plain and the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the picture in here, the power and the strength of your word that we see, the warning we see, the, the warning sign that's right here letting us know what man is capable of, even back just a few generations from the flood, and what man is heading towards in the future. So we thank you for this word, Lord, and we pray you just bless this and speak this to us in Jesus' name. Amen. The name Babylon, or Babel, because it's the same Hebrew word, Babel, uh, it, it's used over 290 times in the Bible. And uh, as far as the city of Babylon is concerned, or, or it's, it's mentioned more in the Bible than any other city except Jerusalem. Right? So Jerusalem is the only other city in the Bible that's mentioned more than Babylon. It's one of the oldest cities in the world, of course. So Babel means confused, or it means confusion. Um, the dictionary defines Babel as a scene of noisy confusion. You can imagine what the scene was like when all of a sudden you're you know, your relatives possibly, even your brothers and your sisters or your moms and your dads were speaking a different language and you had no clue what they were saying. Right? Yesterday, everybody understood everyone. Today, no one understands anyone. Right? And you had to seek out those who understood what you were saying and they had to seek out those who understood what they were saying. It was, obviously, it was a scene of chaotic confusion. You can only imagine. Some define the word Babel as gate of God. And they, def and they split the word up, Bab as in gate or doorway is what it means in Hebrew, and El, as in God. So some will say that it means gate of God. Um, now, here's one thing to know. We're going to go over some things about the Tower of Babel. One thing to know, the tower was not named the Tower of Babel, right, before God confused the language. It got its name because God confused the language, right? So they hadn't named it the Tower of Babel. We're building the Tower of Babylon, right? No. God came down and confused it, and it got that name. Matter of fact, Babylon as a whole got that name because God confused their language. It was one of the greatest empires, the greatest kingdoms, if not the first greatest kingdom of the world, all right, who today is forever etched in history now by confusion. That's how it got its name, right? It was named after God confused the languages. It tells us that in verse 9 that we just read. 
right? The Babylon, the city that was ruled by Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus the Great and Darius the Great and even Alexander the Great and you know, all through history all these different people have come in this area and been in this city or, or this area. This, this is, throughout history it was one of the most inhabited cities of the world. It possibly was one of the first cities to have over 200,000 inhabitants. Um, you know, how we remember it when we look back at it historically and we look at it, that whole thing forever etched in history over one event. The event that named it, which is the Tower of Babel, when God came in and confused the language. Now, the tower is not a myth. Some people will tell you the tower never really existed. It's just a great story that we use to teach from, right? It's just, one, it's, just a, it's a legend. It's a myth. But however, however that's absolutely a lie, right? The tower existed. There's, um, they say its Sumerian name was Etemin Anki. All right, I'm sure I pronounced that completely wrong, but it means house of the foundation of heaven or earth, right? And I'm saying if it, if it had that name, it was given that name later, probably trying to give it a different name besides confusion, right? Oh, look, it's the Tower of Confusion in the City of Confusion. No, 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 at the monkey, right? We call it you know, a different name. Don't call it confusion. But however, when you look back at... Uh, archaeological finds, when you look back at relics they've found in the area throughout history and all the stuff they've done, they found these things called Babylonian tablets, for example, which are these small, if you've ever seen a picture of them, small little clay tablets with writing on it, right? And on one of these tablets, it has a picture of what looks like the Tower of Babel, or a tower, right? And underneath the tower, it says, Etemen uh, Anke. Ziggurat Babel, which basically means the Tower of Babylon, okay? Ziggurat is the type of tower it was. It wasn't a pyramid, right? A ziggurat is a rectangular stepped tower, like the picture here, okay? Ziggurats were built before pyramids, and pyramids may have been influenced by ziggurats, Ziggurats were around longer than pyramids. They were still building ziggurats long after they quit building pyramids, right? So a ziggurat is this rectangular stepped power, tower, not power. Well, you know, there's 32 of the towers that are known today as far as ruins and archaeological ruins and stuff like that are found. 28 of them are found in Iraq, just so you know. Most of them were built in this area that was the area known as Babylon. Um, uh, and they were done with baked bricks, with bitumen, it says here, it might say slime in your translation, depending on what you need, for mortar. Now, if you want to know what that is, because people are like, what's bitumen? Right? What's this slime they're talking about that they use for mortar? Uh, it can also be translated, translated slime pit. Right? The Hebrew word is kemar. Now, this is a little bit of Bible trivia for you in case you know, this ever comes up. Because right? uh, the idea behind it is pitch. They, they'll say it's pitch or it's asphalt. Well, what type of slime pit would be very common in Iraq that they might be using to create asphalt or pitch or tar from, right? Well, oil. Oil, right? So oil was used. They were using oil. They were baking their bricks. The Egyptians didn't bake their bricks when they built the pyramids. They were baking their bricks. They were using oil, some sort of a combination of oil with other ingredients to create this bitumen or this cement or whatever it was 
the stick. One people say, you know, that, that, that type of pitch is waterproof. It's very similar to what they put on the ark, that what Noah put on the ark. And it's also very similar to what they coated uh, Moses' little ark with when they sent him down the river. So why did they build the temple with this type of material? Some people say they were building the temple just in case God decided to flood the earth again and this temple would be high enough that if he flooded the earth, they would be safe inside it. Except, of course, they couldn't build it high enough. There's no way for them to have built it high enough. right? God flooded the earth 200 and some odd feet over the highest mountain at the time. They could have built that temple into the atmosphere. It wouldn't have been high enough if God had decided to flood the earth again. It was ignorant of them to even think Anyway, so on the, what they do is they build these ziggurats, and on the top, depending on how high it went, they all had different heights. They weren't necessarily, uh, they didn't have to be a specific height. Right? They would have a shrine for whoever or whatever it is that they worshipped, and the idea wasn't so much a stairway to heaven. We often think that they were trying to build this so that they could get into heaven. Let's go up and get to God, right? But that's not the idea behind ziggurats. The idea was is to call God down. So on the top of the ziggurat, uh, they would have this shrine uh, for, their, for their god, whatever the god might be. and Because uh, they weren't places for public worship. They weren't places for public ceremonies. They were dwelling places for God. And that's what the ziggurats were designed for. They were an altar to the heavens. Now we know this because the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who's often called the father of history, said the Tower of Babel, or Bel, or Belus, as it's also been called, still stood in his day. Now, this is some 1,500 years later. Right? And he describes it in his writings, his historical writings, he describes it as this. He says, the temple of Bel, the Babylonian Zeus, that's he's referring to the god, was still in existence in my time. It had a solid central tower. It had one stadium, one stadium square with a second erected on top of it and then a third and so on up to eight. All eight towers can be climbed by a spiral running around the outside, and about halfway up there are seats for those who make the ascent to rest on. So if you, made it, if you were climbing it and you made it halfway, you had some seats. Okay? You, could, you could take a break. And on the summit of the topmost tower uh, stands a great temple with a fine large couch in it, richly covered, and a golden table beside it. The shrine contains no image, and no one spends the night there except one Babylonian woman, all alone, whoever it may be that the God has chosen. The Chaldeans say, and then he, and he says this, he says, though I do not believe them, right? The Chaldeans say that the God enters the temple in person and takes his rest upon the bed. That was the idea of the temple. Now, truthfully, we have no idea if Herodotus was describing the actual Tower of Babel or not. Right? We, don't, we don't know. Some think that the Etamanque Tower that there's a lot of historical references for was built upon the ruins of the original tower and therefore wasn't the actual Tower of Babel. It was the next tower that was built there. There's so many different uh, legends and, and stories about you know, when different rulers and you know, conquerors came in into the land. For example, all the way up to... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, what's his name, um, Artaxerxes. They say when Artaxerxes came in, he took the, the ruins of the temple of the uh, Tower of Babel and he had them removed. 
and put somewhere else so that they could clear and flatten the land and build another tower there. So who knows, right? We don't know if he's actually referring to the actual Tower of Babel. The one thing we know is that, one, the tower was built, right? They didn't abandon the building of the tower. The tower was built. That's what it tells us here in verse 5. The city wasn't finished, but the tower was. Because the tower was to be the central, uh, you know, point culturally, uh, architecturally, um, it would be the central point of the whole city. So the whole city would be built around the tower. So the tower was built, it was finished. The city was being built when God came down, saw what they were doing, confused the language, and scattered them. Right? So they abandoned the building of the city, the tower was finished. Right? So all that to say this, right? the point of the tower is that it would dominate the city. Architecturally, culturally, it would serve as a focus point of both their, their political and their religious life. It would be a symbol of their unity and their strength. And as one, you know, they would be, it would show that they were one people with one voice, one government, one religion. It says in verse 1 that the whole earth was of the same language and of the same words, right? And we don't know the language that they were all speaking. Some people think it's Hebrew. Uh, some people think it's uh, Aramaic. You know, my wife said, well, what about Basque, right? Um, the other day, because, you know, Basque is one of those, what do they call it? It's a, uh, it's a language all by itself that's not related to any other language, right? So there's, there's it has no uh, genealogical or genetic relationships, and it's not, doesn't, it can't be shown to descend from any uh, other language that's around. It's a language that's all by itself. There's a few of these, quite a few of these languages throughout the earth that can't be tied to any other languages, right? But that doesn't, who knows? We don't know what language they were speaking at the time. We can only speculate. But language, when you look at the Hebrew, it says the whole earth used the same language. Language can mean binding. And it says that they all had the same words. Words can mean commandment. So what it means is that they all had one, everyone on earth at that time who lived in this area that were helped building the tower and the city, they all had one binding commandment. And guess what? It wasn't to follow God. It was to do the opposite. Right? The tower was built for themselves as a name for themselves. It wasn't built to honor God. It wasn't built for the glory of God. He might have, Nimrod might have even used that as a, as a tool to get people to help. We're going to do this for God. But it, that wasn't the idea. Right? If he used that, it was just a trick to get people to help him. Right? Nimrod was using this temple to motivate the people into falling for a very prideful lie, which was that they could be like God, right? That, that, that they would be a kingdom that could rule over the whole earth, and other people would admire them, and other people would be controlled by them politically and economically, and all the people would worship their gods, right? And all the people would worship them, and in all of that, that they would then make a name for themselves, Right? And the interesting thing, of course, that we know about Babylon is that they almost pretty much did that. I mean, they were, like I said, one of the first great earthly kingdoms, if not the first great earthly kingdoms. They had a huge global influence. And as I've stated, I mean, we spent, we spent four weeks going over Babylon when we were going through the book of Revelation, right? Babylon's influence is still felt today, 
in so many different areas, through so many different cultures and so many different religions. I mean, from this tower, the Tower of Babel, probably is where astronomy started. And from astronomy, you have astrology, right? Both originated in Babylon. Pretty much all cult and occultic beliefs and practices can be traced back to the ancient Babylonian worship system, right? And then, of course, you know, worshiping the stars and all that, yeah, it's pantheism, you're worshiping the creation and not the creator. And we're just talking a few generations from the flood. Matter of fact, Noah was probably alive when God scattered people. He, he hadn't passed yet. He obviously wasn't helped build the tower. I don't even know if everyone even went over there and looked at it. But still, he was still alive when this happened. So, we're, I mean, that's how, you know, just a few generations after the flood, God confuses their language and he scatters them abroad. And, he, and when they left, of course, as we've talked about, they took their idolatrous pagan practices with them, right? Mixed with what they knew about the one true God and what they knew about the flood and what they knew about creation and everything that had been passed on down through Noah and his sons. And they took all that mixed together and all these nations that went out and got built up now had in their DNA, they had this false religious system, a counterfeit religion. That came from Babylon, right? And it grew. And so when we look at things today like Easter and Easter eggs and Ishtar and Purgatory and Lent and the Queen of Heaven and the Yule Log and the Christmas tree and reincarnation and Purgatory and all these things, the influence of all these things came from Babylon. They all have their roots in Babylon. And a lot of them run right back to Satan. Right? Satan took the truth, he deceptively twisted the truth, and for thousands of years, right, has had these lies and these false teachings run parallel with the gospel and has confused it to the point where many people can't even see the difference anymore. Right? I mean, if you really want to get into it, one can make a case that the Catholic religion was birthed from the ashes of the Babylonian Empire. There's a lot of similarities between the two. When the Babylon of old fell to the Medes and the Persians, and then they eventually moved to Pergamus, which is where they were during the time of Christ, then Pergamus was given over to Rome a uh, hundred years later or so. Don't check me on that. Right? And, then, and after that, they moved the religious center to Rome. And then the Pontifus Maximus Constantine, what did he do? He made it the church. He took the church and made it with Babylonian religion. Right? You could say he confused it. Because it's the city of confusion the religion of confusion. So we just tell you all that, you know, not to scare you, but to prepare you, right? That most cults and cultic practices can be traced back to the religious practices of ancient Babylon. So Babylon was the first great earthly kingdom in the cradle of civilization. Humanity was centered around this kingdom in the land of Shinar. It was a strong, centralized, self-sufficient civilization and there's Mystery Babylon, as we read in Revelation, it's going to be one of the last great earthly kingdoms, much the same as its predecessor, right? Though we should mention that it pales in comparison to the kingdom of God, right? The new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation, the contrast between the earthly city of Babylon, the city of confusion that rebels against God, and the heavenly city of Jerusalem, new Jerusalem that brings glory to God, it puts Babylon to shame, of course, right? So the building of this tower and even this kingdom was in direct disobedience to God. And how do we know this? Because it tells us, right? Verse 4, 
verse 4 says, this is the whole reason they built this. This is why I don't believe they built a tower to survive a flood, if one was to happen. Because it tells us right here in verse 4 why they built everything. It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Here's the reason. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That was the whole reason they did it. Right? The whole reason they did this is because back in right, Genesis 9-1, when Noah and his sons and the families got off the ark, God told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they had been fruitful and they multiplied, but they were not filling the earth. Well, I mean, this was more than just building the first skyscraper. It was a declaration of war against the Lord against the word of God. Right? They said, Let us, let's build this city. Let's build this tower for our glory. Let's build this right here. Let's settle right here. Let's worship our false gods right here so we don't have to disperse over all the earth. Let's do this in defiance of what we've been asked to do by God. They had a prideful motivation. They had a compelling desire to do it. But what they didn't have was the approval of God. Right? Proverbs 19.21 tells us that many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And then we see then in verse 5, it says, and then the Lord came down to see the city. And later it the Lord in verse 7 says, come, let us go down. That's a picture of the Trinity there, by the way. Right? Come, let us go down. Who went down? The Lord. The Trinity. So when it says that the God came down, this personal character of the language here indicates that perhaps this was a time when they were visited by Jesus. A pre-incarnate visit. Jesus said, I'm going to go down. I'm going to take a look at what everyone's doing. I'm going to go see this city for, you know, I'm going to go see this tower. I'm going to go see what people are up to. So he goes on down there. Ironically, they built the tower for gods to come down. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the idea behind those type of towers. And God did come down. Now, he didn't come down to rest in their false temple, right, as one of their false gods. But he came down. And his reaction, of course, was not what they were probably hoping if they had known he was coming, right? <clears throat> he took a look at what they were doing. He took a look at what they were making, not that he didn't know beforehand. And he says, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning. They've just started. Things are going to get worse from here, Right? Things are going to get worse from here when you let people rebel against your word. When people are united against God, things are only going to get worse from here. Right? When you're no longer a nation under God, things are going to get worse from here. God says this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they would propose will be impossible for them. So let's go down there. Let's confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is God's mercy. It's God's mercy. 
He didn't say, let's rain fireballs down from heaven and just wipe them out. Let's destroy the city. Let's destroy the tower. Let's destroy every one of those and their pagan gods in that city. Let's just show them who's the real God right here and right now. He didn't do that. He just goes down and he scatters them by confusing their language. I mean, they say today that there's over 7,100 languages. Most of those are Chinese. That's a joke. China has the most languages. China is the, most langu- is the language that is spoke the most on the earth because there's more Chinese people than anybody else, right? There's over 7,100 languages today. Possibly at this time when he confused the languages, maybe their best guess is, you know, trying to figure out population and the math and everything like that. Their best guess is 600 languages. One language to 600, just like that. So like I said, you can imagine the confusion that, wait a minute, I have no clue what you're, you're speaking gibberish to me now. I don't know what's, am I having a stroke? All right. I don't know what's going on. Anybody can, anybody here can speak 600 languages? Anybody can speak two? I have trouble with one, right? English is a tough language. There was, there was a governor of Hong Kong in 1854 to 1859 who said that he knew 200 languages and he could, was capable of speaking 100. That's an amazing thought, right? <coughs> Guinness World Book of Records is Ziad Fazal, who claims to be able to read and speak 58 languages, <coughs> including Thai and Urdu and Norwegian and Arabic and Polish. Some of those seem in direct contradiction to each other. It's like some of the, uh, how do you speak 58 languages? I just don't know. Because some, some languages are so difficult. We've talked about this. So difficult to speak. But this confusion of language and this separation of men was God's mercy. It was God's mercy. It wasn't judgment. He didn't destroy them, and he didn't destroy the tower. Matter of fact, they would finish the city. I'm going to have to assume that Nimrod, he didn't leave the area. This was the first city on the list of all those cities that Nimrod built. Babel, Babel Babylon was the first city on that list. That means all these other cities that he built in that same area, he built afterwards. This whole kingdom of Babylon that got built up was done after this. I'm going to have to assume his language wasn't changed. Or it was changed to a language that was really common to all the other people in that area. And he didn't leave. He didn't scatter to a different area. He stayed right there. And he continued to build his city. And he did. The city was finished. It just wasn't finished then. God scattered them and everyone, for the most part, just left. We don't know, you know what it looked like, mass migration, right? Everyone just takes off for different areas of the globe. We don't know how many people lay, stayed behind and how long it took for him to build up the, <clears throat> the city of Babylon to the way he wanted it after everyone left. But he'd stayed. The city got built. So, but God, in dividing humanity both linguistically and geographically, what he did is he put a stop to their false sense of power and he showed them who was truly in control. You think, you think you're in control here. You're not. Right? Let me show you. Right? And in that, he stopped them because he said, it's only going to get worse from here. Right? So what did he do? Was, in his grace, what did he do? He stopped them from even a greater rebellion that would end up destroying them. He graciously spared their lives, giving them a chance to repent and turn back to God. 
He gave them a chance for a new beginning. Because there was no one that could claim that they did this, right? It's only God. God came down and confused the language and scattered them abroad. They can't say anyone else did it, right? Who did it? God did it. God scattered us. God confused our languages. Turn back to God. It's your chance for a new beginning right now. You were rebelling against God. Now you have a chance to turn back and repent. You have a new beginning. Humanity was a, was a world divided at this point, right? Separated by language and culture and by hundreds of thousands of miles now as they migrated away. Separated by a lack of technology in the sense that you couldn't jump in a car and travel to go visit your relatives in another country, right? I mean, today you can, you can jump in a car and drive from Germany to Moscow in just under 24 hours. Like, same, the same amount of time it takes me to drive from here to California, right, down the coast of Mesa. You can drive from Germany to Moscow, <laughs> which is crazy, but it's true, right? You can't just jump in a, a plane and fly from the United States to Israel in just under 16 hours, right? They didn't have that, obviously, that technology then, so now they're separated by all this land, and they're separated by water, and they're separated by language, and and all this stuff, right? Around the world in 80 days was thought to be impossible at one time. Today you can fly around the world and circumvent the globe in less than 36 hours. Right? That's the updated version of the book that's coming out. Right? Then you had to ride a horse and you had to walk. You didn't you know, you didn't know the other nations language. You, that would have to be learned in order, for you, in order for you to trade with them if you were going to. You'd have to learn what they're saying. You have to learn what they're talking about. But here we are, thousands and thousands of years later, right? <clears throat> the, under, the other side of the world's only a click away. And I can translate another language just with an app on my phone, right? I can take a picture of something written in Japanese, and it'll tell me what it is. I can take a picture of something written in a different language. and I can record someone speaking in a different language, right? You know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you have the Babelfish or whatever. It's, it's an app, right, on my phone. You have the Universal Translator in Star Trek. It's just an app on my phone now. I... I don't need to learn other languages. Someone's done all the work for me, which is great because I'm, I suck at learning languages. Today we're, we're what they call a technopoly. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but we're a technopoly. And what a technopoly is, is it's the, uh, a society that no longer merely relies on technology as a support system, but instead is now shaped by technology. And that's what we are. We're a society that is now shaped by technology. However, with that, what, what comes with that, the, the flip side, because you might think, that's great. Well, okay. But the flip side of that is that it comes with a, a radical and weakened, you know, weak, can we say even fatal consequences for politics and religion and intelligence and truth. I mean, what is truth? Just what Facebook says, right? Just what the fact checkers tell you, who are only giving you their opinions, right? Just what Google says, just what you see on the news is, just, what's truth? Julie and I watched this uh, documentary. It's called, What is a Woman? I say you should, all should watch it. You have to sign up for an account with Daily Wire to be able to watch it. Um, but we, maybe we'll, we'll get really brave one day and show it here after church. It's not for everybody. It's called What is a Woman? 
And one of the things is that he goes around, he's asking people, he's going to, he's going to doctors and scientists and teachers and university professors and, and all these things, people who are psychologists and who, you know, <clears throat> whose job it is to, you know, who help children and, and stuff like that. But what are they helping them with? They're helping them with, you know, trans identity issues and girls who want to be boys and boys who want to be girls and all this type of a thing. And he's asking them, well, can, you're in this field. You do this. Can you, can, you ask me, can you answer a question for me? What is a woman? And no one wanted to answer a question for him. And they're like, I don't like the way you're talking to me. I don't like the way, the way you're asking these questions. He goes, I just have one purpose. He goes, I just want to know what, what is the truth. Well, your truth is what you say it is. Well, no, he, is, I know he says, I believe there is a truth. It's not just what you say it is. Right? What is the truth? What is a woman? Tell me, what's a woman? Well, like, I, don't, I don't want to answer your question. No one wants to answer the question. No one wants to answer the question. No one. What's truth? That's what we've become. We've become a society that's no longer using technology as a support system, but now is being shaped by technology. And because we're being shaped by technology, there's a good side. There's absolutely, I love technology. I'm a gadget freak. There's a bad side to it as well. And that bad side we're seeing, we've seen a lot in the last couple of years. Right? As they determine what to let you see, and they determine what's truth and what you need to accept as truth and what they consider not truth, right? Anyway, why is this? Why have we seen this? Because the world globally right, is, is been trying to rebuild the Tower of Babylon, the Tower of Babel, since the day God confused their language and dispersed them over the face of the earth. They've been trying to get back together as one people, one language, one government, one religion. But they've had barriers they've had to get across, right? Language was one of the biggest, right? But because of technology today, we are closer than ever, right? We are more united than ever. Not really, but... But with technology, the dream of a new world order, one world government, uh, one world economy, one world religion, the dream of a new Babylon, a new Tower of Babel, quote-unquote, is closer than ever. Matter of fact, they just had some uh, meetings in the last couple of weeks and, you know, with the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and all these different things. And on these globalists that are the ones working on wanting to put the world together, right? one world government, new world order, all these globalists, they say all the pieces for the puzzle, they say, are there. They don't think they're missing anything. There's not a piece of the puzzle they claim that they do not have. They claim they have it all. They say the only thing that's missing currently is someone to put the pieces together. That's all they say is missing. They have all the pieces. They have all the technology. They have everything they need to institute what we see coming in the book of Revelation. What they're missing is someone to put all the pieces together. Oh, who's that? the Antichrist. Right? So Babylon's being built today. Religious Babylon, commercial Babylon, the Babylon that's referred to in Revelation 14 as the nation that, 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 that made all the other nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. 
the Babylon that's referred to in chapter 17 of Revelation that says that, that she is the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. The Babylon that's referred to in Revelation 18 that says that uh, she is a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. That Babylon. That Babylon's coming. That ba- all the pieces are there. They're just waiting for someone to put them together. Right? That mystery Babylon, that great prostitute, that world religious system is a smorgasbord right, of world religions, world governments, etc. Now they're entirely devoid of the truth, yet globally accepted. They will be globally accepted. right? Because empty religion is the opium of the masses. And we know it happens because God's word says it happens. We know it's coming. I just saw an interview or a report. I just saw it yesterday. And it was from a Muslim. Um, I'm trying to remember where he was from. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. But he was talking, he wrote this article about that the Muslim religion is antiquated, that it's old, that it needs to come into the future. It needs to be a religion that is accepted by everyone. It needs to be a religion that accepts everyone. And I was reading this And I thought, you know, because the Pope has made several comments very similar about Catholicism and one world order. And I was I was reading this, and I thought, it doesn't. All these world religions that are out there today, when the the Antichrist comes, when this whole new world order is in place, none of those religions will matter anymore. None of them. Because it's not the religion they want you to have. So no matter what the religion is, no matter how worldly acceptable you've made your religion, it's going to be in the wrong place for them when they come. And they will get rid of it just like they get rid of anything else so that you can worship their religion. Right? But you can see how all these other worldly religions are already trying to shape their religious you know, doctrine to be more worldly acceptable, to be more unified, to be more one. So, what does this all mean for us, right? I think there's a couple lessons that we can learn from the Tower of Babel. One is very simple. Um, There's a quote that says, spiritually in our lifetime, we all build towers, right? Spiritually in our lifetime, we all have a time that we try to make a name for ourselves, Right? It's not about giving glory to God. We're living a life that's selfish and prideful. We're living a life where we're trying to make a name for us. We want people to remember us. We want people to give glory to us. We want to be remembered. Right? We, want to, we want to be that tower that everyone looks at. can look back in the history books later on and go, do you remember that person? Yeah, man. He was so awesome. We want to be that person. We want to put ourselves in that spot. I mean, some of us physically build towers. I mean, if you're an architect or something, I'm not trying to take away from your work, right? I mean, there's some really tall towers out there. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, right? Merdeka 118 in Malaysia, the Shanghai Tower in China. Of course, you have the Eiffel Tower and the Trump Tower and the Willis Tower. I've been on the Willis Tower in Chicago. It's like the tallest tower in Chicago. You can go up to the 103rd floor, which is the sky deck, and you can step out into the glass balcony, and you can look down. And you can see the building swaying. And then you step back, and you're like, okay, I'm ready to go down now. 
right? But anyway, listen, as believers, as followers of Christ, we are not here to help build arrogant towers of men. That is not our purpose. We are not here to make a name for ourselves. We are here to lead people to Christ. We are here to seek and save the lost. We are here to build the body of Christ, which is the church. Right? All for the glory of God. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. That's why we're here. When we start building arrogant towers of men, we're, we're living a life in rebellion to Christ. So we're here, if we're going to build anything, we need to be helped build the body of Christ. The world, the world can build all the towers at once. It can. But they will never achieve what Christ achieved on the cross. They will never come close. Never. Right? If we want to be united, we can be united in one thing. The revelation of God to man through his word, Jesus Christ, right? The living word. Hebrews tells us that God has spoken to us by his son. If we want to be united, we can be united in that. Be united in the body of Christ. See, what we see when we look at the, the Tower of Babel and Babylon and the history of Babylon and all of that that's tied into it, we see that the potential of fallen man is terrible, right? The potential of fallen man is powerful, I mean, we can write books about the, the, the horrific accomplishments of evil men in the 20th century or evil men in the last two years. We can write books about those evil men. And that's the world we live in, unfortunately. A world that refuses to acknowledge the pain and refuses to acknowledge the suffering and the rise in suicides and the rise in addictions and the emotional and economical and psychological toll that these last couple of years have taken on the lives of so many. A friend I work with, a good friend of his, committed suicide this last week. That's the toll it's taking on people we know and the friends of people we know. Perversity in America is celebrated. Right? Gender is a social construct. Athletes, you know, male athletes are now dominating women's sports. Because they identify as a woman. The schools are allowing it. I mean, in this documentary we watched, one of the, the women athletes is, is being interviewed in the you know, silhouetted dark so you can't see who she is. He agreed to come on camera as long as you couldn't recognize her. Talks about the fact that the women athletes came to the athletic department and said, this is a problem. Right? You're allowing these male athletes who identify as a woman to perform in our sports. We're losing <laughs> every match because we can't compete with them. They're in our locker rooms. They're, you know, undressing and watching us undress. There's problems. This has, we have to address this. And the, the, uh, the athletic department of this particular university told them they are here to stay. We have people who are coming in to help you make the adjustment. That's not the answer I wanted. So perversity is being celebrated, it's being accepted, it's being put as normal, right, to where your kids are in school and where your kids are going to college and et cetera. We're asking elementary school kids, five-year-old kids, to watch drag queen shows in their schools, to stuff 
money in their underwear. Come on. And when the parents are saying, this isn't going to happen in our school, they're told to back down, right? Overdose deaths in Oregon, the state of Oregon, they're up 700% in Oregon because of the decriminalization of possessing hard drugs. But they'd rather decriminalize the hard drugs than address the overdose problem. Transsexual cheerleaders are making their debut in the NFL. You know, it's easier for children to get puberty blockers than it is to help them with their depression and their psychological issues. And they say to puberty blockers, oh, we can just, they can just start them on that and then we can take them off that later and it'll be fine. Won't, won't cause any problems. Yeah, except for all the people who've taken it and said, no, it does cause problems. <laughs> and, we don't, and we want people to know that, right? So we're a country in ruin, we're a country divided, we're an economy in shambles, lives destroyed, but hey, it's going to be all okay. If you all bow down and worship the golden idol, if you all bow down and worship the golden calf, it's going to be okay, right? Because we're going to build back better. No. So we have a choice to make. Who do we serve? God or man? That's the choice. Because the world, they serve man. And when they build the towers, they're building towers to make a name for themselves. The world serves man. They serve themselves. They serve Satan, willingly or unwillingly. Right? Global leaders are now closer and more united than they've ever been in trying to form this new Babylon. As I've said, they think all the pieces are there. They just need someone to put the pieces together. We know it's going to happen. God's word does not lie. Our current administration tried to sign away the sovereignty of our nation in the last two weeks. And the only thing that stopped them was that other nations stood up and said, no, we won't adopt this. Right? Thirteen amendments added to the health treaty right? through the World Health Organization. And some countries such as India, China, Iran, Brazil, even Russia, refused to step up and say, no, we won't sign this treaty. We, won't, we will not sign it. We will exit from the World Health Organization altogether if you adopt these 13 amendments that have been suggested by the United States. What did these 13 amendments do? They gave control of the nation's sovereignty to the World Health Organization. They said all the World Health Organization has to do is declare that there is a health problem, a health, you know, oh no, another virus is coming, and they can just step in and take over your whole country. And what we already know from previous experience in the last couple of years, you give a leader powers, they don't give them back. Right? Inslee hasn't given up his powers yet. He still has his emergency powers. For what? For what reason? Right? Anyway, I don't want to go too much down that road, but they said they're going to address the situation next year. Right? They'll, give them, they'll give you another year. They're going to form a committee. That committee is going to figure out what to do about these amendments. And then as long as they're working on their global digital passport and ID system and everything that ties together with a one world government and one world economy, etc., they're going to address it next year. Anyway, the world serves man. They serve themselves. They're forming a new Babylon. And they do so rebelliously. They do so arrogantly. They do so pridefully. They do so in direct disobedience to God and to God's word. This is what God thinks. You've heard these uh, verses before, I'm sure. And if you haven't, good. 
You can hear him now for the first time. It's Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's pretty much what they said in Babylon. Let's build a city and a tower here so that we don't have to be dispersed across the nation. Let us burst away from these bonds that God's put on us. We can make a name for ourselves right here. Well, verse 4 is God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God holds them in derision. He looks down at what they're doing, looks down at what man's doing, and he just laughs. Nice try, guys. Nice try. So where do you stand? Who are you serving? Right? God or man? Because the destiny of the selfish and the materialistic and the humanistic and the prideful and the immoral world is God's fiery judgment. The world today is like Babylon. It's getting there. Right? The habitation of Satan, the haunt for every unclean spirit, it would seem. And we've seen a lot lately. However, hope, hope is found in Jesus Christ. Right? And for those who put their faith in Jesus, God says, I will remember your sins no more. Right? He will be merciful towards your iniquities. So what do we do? We just turn to Jesus. Jesus is salvation for those who believe. Christ Jesus himself, as it tells us in Ephesians 2, is the chief cornerstone. Right? In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. Not a temple for man. A temple for the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You. You want to build something? Build that. Let God build that in you. Right? Let's do it for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for even somewhat uncomfortable words as this when we learn about you know, the Tower of Babel and what that means today and the future prophetic applications of what's coming. But where we can take our rest and where we have our peace and where we can find our joy is in the fact that in you, in Jesus, we have hope. So we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his spirit. We thank you for the work that you were doing through, through us, Lord. And then I pray that you just continue to draw us closer to you, that we continue to keep our eyes fixed on you. And we continue to serve you and not man. I thank you for this, Lord, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.